Gene therapy holds the promise to permanently cure diseases that have been considered lifelong challenges. But the complexity of rewriting DNA is truly huge and lives in its own special kind of big data world. On this episode, you'll meet David Bourne, a computational biologist who uses Python to help automate genetics research and helps move that work to production. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 335, recorded September 15th, 2021. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is brought to you by Shortcut, formerly known as clubhouse.io, and us over at TalkPython Training. And the transcripts are brought to you by Assembly AI. David, welcome to Talk Python to Me. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. One of the things I really love to explore is the somewhat non-traditional use cases of Python that are not straight down the, I'm building an API and something that talks to a database for a startup, right? Something like that. But blending it with other technologies and science and whatnot and genetics plus Python, it's going to be interesting. It sure is. When you got into this, did you start out on the biology side or the programming side of the world? I definitely started out on the biology side. Yeah. So okay. I, I went all the way through grad school with relatively minimal formal programming experience. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you studied biology and genetics and, and whatnot. And then how'd you end up here on a Python podcast. <laughs> yeah. So I always thought that programming would be cool, but I didn't really have much of an opportunity through my undergraduate studies to really do much formal programming. Yeah. I took our one computer science class that my college had to offer. It was in C++. I think I wrote a boggle program, something with some recursion in there. It was yeah. pretty fun. Didn't really get to use Python until graduate school. I was in a genetics course and we were basically tasked with doing some data analysis on published data and then reproducing some plots in a figure and then extending it further. My partner and I decided to learn Python, teach it to ourselves so that we could do this. We heard that it was, it was a good way to do data analysis in biology. And so we basically taught it to ourselves and we used NumPy, some basic string searching and things to redo this analysis. And it was really amazing uh, what we could do with with Python for that civil project. That's awesome. How'd the learning project go? Like coming from not having a ton of programming, you know, what was your experience like? It was relatively easy. I would say, I, I think my brain sort of fits pretty well with how programming languages work, but it was definitely a lot in a short amount of time to really dive into how to you know, make sure your, your while loops don't stay open. And then someone tells you maybe you shouldn't use a while loop at all. <laughs> I was exactly. I was learning a lot of things not to do right away. Yeah, of course. But you had to get it all the analysis done, right? So you got to solve all the problems and power through. Yeah, we did. We got our analysis done there and we got some, we reproduced some plots and got some new analysis made. And I think we really just, I really came to appreciation of how much you can do in a short amount of time with just a little bit of coding knowledge or essentially none. Yeah, I think that's really an important takeaway that a lot of people yeah, maybe many people listen to the podcast already kind of know, but 
I think looking in from the outside, it feels like, oh, I've got to, you know, go get a degree in this to be productive or useful. And and really what you need is like a couple of weeks and a small problem and you're already already there. Absolutely. Yeah. I've all, I've definitely found that just learning through through doing has been the way I've I've worked entirely. I have essentially no formal programming training, no no coursework and I'm using Python every day. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I didn't take that much computer science in college either, just uh, enough to do the the extra stuff from my math degree. Very cool. All right. Now, how about today? You're working at Beam Therapeutics, doing genetic stuff. Tell us about what you do day to day. Yeah, so I'm on the computational sciences team at Beam Therapeutics. We're a gene editing company, so we develop these precision genetic medicines that are, we're trying to develop them to cure genetic diseases that are caused by single genetic changes in the genome. Like a point shift mutation or something like that? Yep. Yep. And so so if you have one of these genetic changes, you might have a disease that is lifelong and there aren't any cures for most of these diseases. So we're trying to create these, we call them hopefully lifelong cures for patients by changing the genetic code back to what it should be. That's incredible. It seems really out of the future. I mean... It's, I think it's one thing to understand genetics at play, and it's even amazing to be able to read the gene sequences, but it's entirely another thing, I think, to say, and let's rewrite that. Yeah, we're definitely at the cutting edge of a lot of biotechnology and science that has really come to a head in the last decade with, the, with CRISPR and technologies yeah. that use CRISPR, which ours do be able to precisely target genetic sequences it's a really fascinating place to work and it's a privilege. Uh, I bet a lot of people go to work and they end up writing what uh, you might classify as forms over data. It's like, well, I need a view into this bit of our database or I need to make, be able to run a query to just see who's got the most sales this week or you know something like that. And that's important work and it's, it's useful and there's cool design patterns and whatnot you can focus on. But it's also, it's not like what people dream of necessarily building when they wake up. But this kind of science, like maybe so, right? Like these are the really interesting problems that both have a, a positive outcome, right? You're helping cure disease, not just, you know, shave another one one hundredth of a percent off of a transaction that you get to keep or, you know, something like that, right? From like in finance. Yeah. You get to use really cool tech to do it too, like programming wise. Yeah. I and mean, one of our dreams that we joke about on the computational team is that like it's conceivable one day we could, you know, say, like, hey, Alexa, how do we cure sickle cell disease? And it'll tell you what parts of our technology we should put together to cure that disease. That's sort of like the pipe dream of, of where we could go if we combine all our data in the right ways. And I think all of the stuff we'll talk about today is really just laying out the, the framework for that. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned CRISPR. Maybe tell people a bit about that biotechnology. Yeah, so CRISPR is molecular machine, which a lot, which targets a very specific place in a specific genetic sequence. And so usually people are using CRISPR to target a specific place in the genome, a specific sequence. And what CRISPR does naturally is to to cut at that sequence. So it'll cut in a very specific place in the genome. And as people who are using CRISPR, we can actually decide where it's going to cut by giving it a different targeting sequence. This sort of like directed molecular machine 
is a basis of a whole new field of biotechnology yeah. using CRISPR and CRISPR derived technology. So our technology is, is like kind of a CRISPR 2.0 where we, we don't use CRISPR to cut. We use the localization machinery and we add onto it another protein, which just changes a base instead of cutting the DNA itself. So it's slight variation, but it's still using this same CRISPR technology. Okay. So let me see if my not very <laughs> knowledge filled background understanding here is kind of a, has a decent analogy. So does it work basically like you give it like almost like find and replace, like you give it a sequence of pairs and it says, okay, if I find a T T C A T like enough specificity and that it's like, that's the unique one. And then it does like cut at that point. Is that kind of how it works? Yep. It's pretty much just like that. We you okay. give it the, the sequence you want to target. And then if it finds that sequence in the genome, it will cut the genetic material, the DNA at that position for, for normal CRISPR. When you're coming up with these and you say, we're going to rewrite the DNA to solve this problem, how do you do it on a large enough scale, right? Like how do you, I mean, how much of the body has to be changed for this to be kind of, to be permanent, right? Right. It's definitely a, a tricky question. I think we are, we definitely leverage human biology, how the human body works for a lot of these problems. For example, our, some of our leading drug candidates are for sickle cell disease. And because of the way sickle cell disease manifests in red blood cells and red blood cells are created through a set of, through, there's a specific type of cell that creates red blood cells. And we can, if you access that type of cell and you cure, cure a sickle cell in these progenitor cells, the stem cells, then you can create all red blood cells from a cured population. So if you can target it to the progenitor cells, you can cure sickle cell throughout the body, essentially, because the symptoms are from red blood cells. And there's a lot of diseases that which by curing a single organ, you can cure the symptoms of the disease because that's where it actually manifests. All right. Like, like diabetes or sickle cell anemia or something like that. Yeah, like sickle, sickle cell diseases in the liver, like some blindnesses in the eye. By just targeting specifically where the symptoms occur, you can cure the disease. Yeah, that's amazing. Is it a shot? Is it a, a blood transfusion? Or like, how do you deliver this stuff? Yeah, the delivery is a huge place of research. And it definitely depends on the, the type of targeting we're doing. So for something in the eye, it would probably be an injection. Um, for something in the blood, it's slightly more complicated and not an injection for something in the, the liver, it would probably be more, more akin to a injection or dosing regimen. Okay. It sounds uh, really fascinating. Like I said, if it feels like it's a little bit out of the future to be able to come up with these and just say, no, we're just going to rewrite this little bit of the genetics and I think it'll be good. But if you can make it happen, it's, it's pretty clear how it's obviously a benefit, right? Like those progenitor cells, they eventually have to recreate new ones. And then the way they do that is they clone their their current copy of the DNA, which is the fixed one, right? So if you can get right. enough of them going, it'll just sort of propagate from there. Yep. And we also have the benefit that some, sometimes you, you only need to cure a small fraction to remove the symptom. And so oh, yeah. lots of things going for us there. Wow, that's awesome. So there, I'm sure there's a lot of people involved in this type of work. What exactly are you and your team working on? Yeah, so our team, we call ourselves a computational sciences team. We really sit in the in the middle of the research and development arm of the organization, processing all of our sequencing data 
and some other data as well. And as you can imagine, with our technology changing DNA, changing genomes, there's a lot of sequencing data because what we're trying to do is change a genetic sequence. So we have to read out that genetic sequence and then figure out, has it changed? How many copies are changed and things like that? Yeah. The field of the techniques of ne next generation sequencing, NGS, are pretty broad. And we deal with a lot of different types of these next generation sequencing assays that are being done at Bean. Our team really processes, analyzes, and collaborates with the experimental scientists on performing and developing these experiments. Cool. So the scientists will do some work and they'll attempt to use CRISPR-like technology to make changes. And then they measure the changes that they've made. And it's you all sort of take that data and compare it and work with it. Right. Yeah. The act of measuring the changes itself is relatively computationally intensive. So we run and support pipelines for all of these standard assays as well, which is, is part of our, our job. How much data is in DNA? I mean, I know that human biology stores or just biology stores an insane amount of data, but also computers store an insane amount of data and process it. So I'm, I'm not sure like which, where the sort of trade-off is, but what sort of data are we talking about? How much? Yeah, I mean, it definitely depends on the type of assay that we're doing, like the scale of the data. I would say it would, usually we're not looking, well, sometimes we're looking at things that are looking at all the bases in the genome. More often we're looking at defined regions of the genome where we're trying to make the change. Right. You're like, this one gene is the problem, right? And let's look at that. Right. Yeah. We're trying to target here. So that's where we're looking. It definitely depends on the assay, but but I guess in terms of data scale, in terms of file sizes, perhaps that would be accessible. Yeah. For standard things, it would be on the order of a few gigabytes per experimental run. For some of our larger assays, it's 10 to 100 times that right. per experiment. That's a lot of data, but not impossible to transmit sort of amounts of data, right? Or store. Right. Every little piece of it is is pretty manageable. When you start combining them together and looking at some doubt, like your downstream results and things, the data does get pretty, pretty large, but I wouldn't say we're at the scale of like big data analytics at Google or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or the LHC, if you've ever looked at the data flow layers at the LHC, it's like the, the stuff near the collectors is just unimaginable amounts of data, right? Yeah. I um, haven't looked, but I'm sure it's <laughs> certainly. Yeah. They've got a lot of stuff built in, like on board the detectors to filter it down a bunch and then it goes for processing then it gets filtered down some more and then like eventually it gets to a point where like now we have enough space on hard drives to save it but before that it was like it couldn't be saved on hard drives it was just too much wow. yeah a very interesting but it sounds to me like some of the real big challenges for you all is the computational bits right because it's if you take all these things and you can end up in like combinatorial comparison scenarios i'm sure that that can really blow up the computing time. Yeah, I think definitely uh, there's a, a lot of the challenges is, yeah, sometimes in these combinatorics. And there's also just uh, a lot of steps that have to go on to process a lot of this data. There's a lot of biology-specific pieces of software that we use for various things, and we have to string them together to create a complete data processing pipeline. And, and a lot of that are is part of our job, uh, how to get all these tools to behave together and act in unison to actually process the data effectively. I can just imagine some of these pipelines are tricky. It's like, 
Well, okay, so it starts over here where the robot gets it, and it reads this data, and we can access that off the hard drive, and then it has to be sent to this Windows app that actually doesn't have an API, so we got to somehow like automate that thing and then get data out of it, and then is that what it's like? That's some of it for sure. Tell us about your life. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a couple aspects that I think we might touch on them, but for sequencing experiments, the, the pipelines are more defined because we usually get the data from a source that's already in the cloud, which I'm always happy about. If we can, we can start in the cloud, we'll stay in the cloud and that's a nice right. place to be. For, inst- for data that's coming directly from instruments on premises, there is another layer of, of art that has to do with software on the instrument software that gets the data to the cloud and moves it around between our other database sources. And that, that is a, some fun projects in itself there. Yeah, I can imagine. I've worked in some areas where it's like collecting data from all these different things and then you, you know to process it and, and move it along. And yeah, it's not always just send it from this Python function to that Python function to that Python function. There's a lot of janky stuff that wasn't really meant to be part of pipelines, possibly. Absolutely, yeah. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Shortcut, formerly known as Clubhouse.io. Happy with your project management tool? Most tools are either too simple for a growing engineering team to manage everything, or way too complex for anyone to want to use them without constant prodding. Shortcut is different though, because it's worse. No, wait, no, I mean it's better. Shortcut is project management built specifically for software teams. It's fast, intuitive, flexible, powerful, and many other nice, positive adjectives. Key features include team-based workflows. Individual teams can use default workflows or customize them to match the way they work. Org-wide goals and roadmaps. The work in these workflows is automatically tied into larger company goals. It takes one click to move from a roadmap to a team's work to individual updates and back. Type version control integration. Whether you use GitHub, GitLab, or Bitbucket, Clubhouse ties directly into them so you can update progress from the command line. Keyboard-friendly interface. The rest of Shortcut is just as friendly as their power bar, allowing you to do virtually anything without touching your mouse. Throw that thing in the trash. Iteration planning. Set weekly priorities and let Shortcut run the schedule for you with accompanying burndown charts and other reporting. Give it a try over at talkpython.fm shortcut. Again, that's talkpython.fm shortcut. Choose Shortcut, because you shouldn't have to project manage your project management. With robots, do you have to actually talk to the robots and like any of the type of automated things? Yeah, for lab automation is what we, we call our, our team that has the, uh, the robots, as we like mm-hmm. to call them. <laughs> as you can imagine, with a lot of these types of experiments, they can be made much more efficient if we can have robots doing the actual transfer of liquids and incubation and centrifugation, these scientific techniques that sometimes you need someone in the lab to do, but oftentimes you can automate them. So the the lab robotics aspect is an important part of how we can efficiently generate data. A lot of the issues around that come with how to pass instructions to the instrument and how to get back data from the instrument when it's done. And then there's a whole other art of making the instruments actually orchestrate together, which is held in a, in a different world of software. <laughs> I don't actually work on that part myself. But Yeah, that part of programming definitely seems a little bit magical, getting factories or 
little automations of, of different machines to work together. It's very cool. There's a whole lot of proprietary software involved in actually running the instruments, but in terms of the problems in getting the data to them, I, I think it's one of those, it could be a relatively common software problem of getting information from somewhere in the, in the cloud. We have like electronic lab notebooks and laboratory data systems that are in the cloud and users will be submitting information about how they want their samples processed by the robots. There's the problem of getting that to, to the instruments themselves. And I, I think it actually sort of reminded me of the talks you guys had in episode, I think it was 327, the small automation projects. Yeah, yeah. We end up with quite a few of those here where we have these relatively small tasks of take data from an API, put it somewhere where a robot can access it. Usually we use AWS S3 and these sort of very small data handling tasks end up being these nice little little projects for, for Python to come into play. That's awesome. I can see that that definitely happens, right? If a file shows up here, grab it, upload it to that bucket and, and name it whatever the active experiment is with the data or something like that, right? That's a very small program to write, but then that becomes a building block in this, this flow of putting these pieces and machines together. Right, yeah. Once it comes into the cloud, we do another set of data processing audit. We upload it to our current databases and all of that we orchestrate on AWS using, I guess they, they call it their, their serverless design patterns. Yeah. So we don't have to handle anything on our own computers. Yeah, that's really nice. And the serverless stuff probably helps you avoid running just tons of VMs in the cloud, right? Like it can all be on demand. Like the Lambda trigger is a file appears in this S3 bucket. So then it starts down the, the flow, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I really don't like maintaining a lot of infrastructure, although we do have a good amount of it that we do have to maintain. I find that these these small Python functions are the perfect use case for those event-driven Lambda functions, which are, are running these very simple pieces of code. When an object appears in S3, they get a small event about when the object was uploaded, and then they, they do their thing, a little bit of data conversion, send it to an API, and now the data is in our data store. And those things just happen, and they're super consistent. They don't require anything on my, my end to maintain. It's a pretty, pretty beautiful pattern. That's awesome. They don't need things like oh, it's, there's a new kernel for Linux uh, that patches a vulnerability, so let's go and, and patch our, our functions, right? Just, it's all magic. It all happens on its own. Right. It does feel like magic a lot of the time, yeah. Setting them up can be a, a little bit of a challenge, but once they're there, they are very consistent. Yeah, yeah, cool. One of the things you talked about doing, uh, using was the AWS CDK or Cloud Development Kit. I think yeah, I've heard this of this before, but it's like, I've definitely not used this personally. Tell us, what is this? How does it help you? Right. So I, when I started dabbling with these Lambda functions, what I found pretty soon after I had you know four or five of these functions, which I had uploaded on the AWS console. And if anyone's used that, know that it can be pretty tedious once you have a few things running, getting all of your permissions and things set up. And I was looking for better ways to do this. And at that point, it was early days for this AWS uh, development kit, the AWS CDK. And what it is, is a way to write your infrastructure as code in essentially any, any common language, programming language. So you can write JavaScript, TypeScript, I think you can do Java, Go, and Python perhaps. Yeah. And 
using it, you can define your cloud infrastructure in an object-oriented way with all the parameters they need. And you can deploy it to different AWS accounts. You can take it down. You can reconfigure it and look at how it's changed since your last commit. And you can store all that configuration in source control. And this has allowed us to scale up in terms of like number of Lambda functions. I think we have like maybe 60 or something now, which would be unmaintainable in the council, but they're essentially just completely maintained inside of source control these days using AWS CDK and Python. Yeah, it seems super neat. I have not used it, but on the page, which I'll link to in the show notes, they have uh, Werner Vogels, the CTO of Amazon or AWS, and talks about some of the benefits and kind of how it all fits together. And like you said, you can store your cloud structure definition in source control. You can run unit tests against your infrastructure to say, if I apply all these commands to AWS, so I actually get what I was hoping to get out of it. And yeah, it's, it seems like a really neat thing for uh, this infrastructure's code bits. Yeah, and I think it, I mean, it definitely really shines when you're developing larger pieces of infrastructure, but I would actually encourage people to check it out, even if they have a, a small automation type project. Um, this is what I was thinking of when I was listening to episode 327 the other day. When you have these, you know, things you'd want to run on your, your computer with a cron job, you can actually run them for free on AWS Lambda. You get a bunch of free time on the free tier and you try it out. You don't need to make sure your system D processor or whatever is, is running. And it's a pretty cool way to get familiar with how to do some of these things on AWS. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if this also exists for other cloud providers. Uh, we use AWS uh, in particular, so that's what I know, but yeah. it may also exist for things like uh, Azure and Google Cloud. Sure. Yeah, maybe. I don't know if it does either, but it definitely seems useful for what you all are doing there. One of the things it could be useful for, and one of the challenges I suspect that you run into more than a lot of places, certainly more than like an e-commerce site or something like that, is reproducibility, right? If you're going to say, we're going to come up with a treatment that literally gets injected into people, you've got to go through FDA, you've got to have, you know, possibly peer-reviewed stuff. There's a lot of reproducibility and, and data stewardship going on, I imagine, right? Absolutely. That's definitely the case. We are very cognizant of the, the fact that we have to make our software as reproducible as possible. Um, I think a lot of that lends itself to just using good development practices, containerizing everything that you're doing for data processing, pinning all your versions, appropriate source control, all of these things. And the infrastructure is definitely a piece of that because if we can't deploy the pipeline in the same way a year from now, we won't be able to get the same results from the data. And that's a problem. Uh, that's a big challenge. It's tricky, right? Because things like containers and source control, they'll absolutely get you very far. But then you're also depending on these external things that are have been very stable and very likely will be, like Lambda, for example. But what if Amazon went out of business, right? Which, you know, is kind of laughable, right? It's only like doubled its revenue this year or something. But, you know, theoretically, it's possible that AWS decided to shut down or something like that, right? Yeah. It's definitely true. So you got to think, you got to, these are trade-offs, right? But at the same time, it's so enabling for you to just scale out all this workload. Yeah. I mean, in terms of how we create data pipelines, I think a lot of the, the ways we do it, we, we do have to be aware of creating them in a way that you can run them 
outside of the cloud. Sometimes we need to allow a third party to run our data analysis in a regulated way. And that requires us to have essentially running it internally. We run it in the cloud, which is efficient for scaling, but we also need to be able to take that same piece of software and run it in a way that may not be on AWS, may not be in the cloud at all. And that creates some interesting software challenges. Yeah, I'm sure because so many of the APIs are, you know, cloud native, right? You import Bodo, Bodo do this thing or something like right. that, right? How do you yeah, deal with that? I think a lot of it comes down to structuring your workflows and your data pipelines in, in ways that are, they're not really using the cloud as much as they're, they're using the cloud as a, both a file system and a way to gain compute but they're not using any piece of the cloud to actually affect the data processing itself. So ideally, if you create the data pipeline in a way that is appropriate, you can both run it in the cloud and run it locally and achieve identical results because it's containerized. Primarily, that's the the reason, I guess. Yeah. But but doing that, I think, is is a challenge in itself. And it's really like the process of getting a a data pipeline built is a big ask in our field. I think a, a lot of companies spend a lot of time thinking about this. Yeah, I'm sure they do. (laughs) And getting it right is a a huge enabler, right? So let's talk about the process of maybe coming up with a new data pipeline. What does a software project look like for you all? Yeah, so it usually begins with a a collaborative meeting with some experimental scientists where we we discuss what's the experimental design going to be like, what are we going to be looking at in the data, and then the experimentalists will go and they'll generate some form of sequencing data. At that point, we generally take the data, open up some Jupyter notebooks or some small Python, sometimes even just bash scripts to try to use some of those standard third-party tools. These are things like making sure all the sequences are aligned to each other so that you know when there's differences and, and making sure the quality is correct, things like that. These are pretty standard bioinformatics things. Right. And then for sequencing assays, there's usually a, a couple spots where there's some real experimental logic going into it, where often we'll have to write custom code in Python to say, if there's this sequence here, it means we should keep the sequence. And if there's this sequence here, we should divide the sequence in half or, or something like that. And so that code gets written in Python. Maybe it's in the Jupyter Notebook or a, another script. And we sort of do this really slow testing, depending on the size of the data. It might be locally on a laptop or in a small cloud-based HPC type cluster. Right. This is like where we're doing. You're not trying to process all the results. You just want to spot check and see if it's coming out right before you turn it loose, right? Right. Or we're very okay. patient. <laughs> it's a little bit above. <laughs> Sometimes it's yeah. very difficult to uh, take only a small fraction of the data, but we try when we can. Once we you know, settle on something that we think is pretty locked down, we'll, we'll take it out of the Jupyter Notebooks. We don't try to use Papermill or anything like that. We, we try to get it out of there as soon as possible into some more complex scripts. They, they might be a, a shell script that runs a number of other scripts in order, or we might use start using some sort of workflow manager. The workflow managers in bioinformatics are, are pretty common because everyone has the same problem of running all these third-party tools together and custom code. Right. It's a lot of shared tools as well, probably. Right. They all use this library or that app. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's definitely or whatever it is. Right. There's a, there's a whole bunch of standard bioinformatics tools that 
we run on almost everything. And, and so some of the workflow managers are designed to specifically work very well with those tools and, and others are pretty agnostic of what you're doing with them. Yeah. But one of the things I find interesting and listening to you talk about this, it just reminded me is so often we see these problems that people are solving, right? Like over here, we're using CRISPR to do all this work. And then you talk about the tools you use. It's like, oh yeah, we're using like NumPy and Pandas and Jupyter and these kinds of things. And the thing that I find really interesting is for software development, there's so much of the stuff that is, it's just the same for everyone, right? They're they're doing the same thing. And then there's 10 or 20% that like, yeah, this field does this part different, but there's like 80% of, yeah, we kind of, we should use source control. We're using Python. We're using notebooks, we're using pandas and, and that kind of stuff. And it's the similarities are, are way more common than I think they appear from the outside. It's a great point. And I, and I think we'd, we'd all be better off if we reminded ourselves of that more often <laughs> that we're not just because we're doing biotechnology and things with Python that we're largely very similar to other software developers doing data science on business topics or finance right, or right. just standard web development. You could be at a hedge fund and you're like, ah, this isn't that different than what I'm used to, actually. Yeah. And if you think like that, we you end up with, I think, better practices overall in software. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I totally agree. Also, I suspect that this fact is what also makes the data science tools and all the tooling around Python libraries and, and whatnot so good because it's not just like, oh, the biologists have made this part of it really good. It's like, most of the people are all really refining like the, the core parts. Right. Yeah. So. I think that's that's definitely the case. And some of the biology specific tools are are a little a little wonky when you <laughs> when you start using them. <laughs> but I think I mean things like pandas are are really amazing. You can tell the amount of attention or something is, is different. Cool. What does moving to production look like for you? So you talked about sometimes it's you start the exploration and stuff in notebooks, which is exactly what they're built for. And then moving to maybe a little more composition of scripts and whatnot. And eventually somehow you end up with, you know, Lambda, cloud databases, things like that. What's that flow? Yeah. So the the process of, I guess we say like productionizing a, a pipeline is we've had pretty well set now. And generally how it, it works is we say this pipeline is about done and we'll hand it off to myself or one of my colleagues to start the process of getting it fully cloud capable and scalable. And what that means for us is to take the software in whatever form we've gotten it from our colleagues and put it into a workflow manager. And we, I think every company has their own version of workflow manager that they, they choose. We're using Luigi, which is fully Python based. It was originally developed at Spotify to do this sort of task. It uses like a, a GNU make type target file DAG creation. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know all the technical terms to describe how the, the tasks are built, but you essentially you have a, a task at the end and you say it requires the output of this other task. And then that task requires the more. And as they build up, you create a graph of what tasks need to be done to get to our output. Right. A, a directed acyclic graph. And then the workflow they, can decide like, oh, these two things are independent. So let's scale them out separately. But now this one has to wait for these two to finish and then get its results. And that coordination can be really tricky. Exactly. And there's a number of common workflow managers and 
bioinformatics, I think the two most common are Snakebake and Xflow. Luigi is has also been really good for us. We like it primarily because it is fully Python-based and it uses standard Python syntax, which allows us to really, if we need to, get under the hood and add some customization, extend it where we need to, or or fix things that we don't like about it. And that was a really important part of our decision in choosing Luigi over some of these other workflow managers. Yeah, for sure. I had a nice conversation with the Airflow, Apache Airflow folks not too long ago. And one of the things that really struck me about this is the ability for people to work on little parts of the processing, a little bit like that uh, little Python automation tools or little Python projects that you described earlier in episode 327, in that instead of trying to figure out all this orchestration, you just have to figure out, well, this little task is going to do a thing. And that, like I said, maybe means see the file and then copy it over there. And if your job was see a file here, copy it over there, like that's a really simple job. You can totally nail that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas if your job is to orchestrate this this graph and make sure that it runs on time and here's the failure case, all of a sudden that becomes super, super hard. So these seem really empowering, almost like the promise of microservices is like you get to focus on one little part and do that. Yeah, it definitely it definitely helps and it helps with that idea of having these small tasks, it really helps with how you can develop it and, and reuse the the components for each task. Like we might, as we said earlier, that there are these third-party tools that end up being used in almost all of our pipelines and using something like Luigi or any workflow manager, you can reuse the tasks in different contexts as need be. And you can have your perfectly optimized way of using that task everywhere that reuses is really nice. And it's something I think a lot of software developers appreciate. Yeah, for sure. So if you look at some of the folks that are using Luigi, so Spotify, as you said, created it, but also Foursquare, Stripe, Asana, SeatGeek, you know, a lot of companies that people probably heard of like, oh, these, these places are doing awesome stuff. Let's be like them. Yeah. A lot of places use it for like Hadoop and things like that. And one of the nice things, as you mentioned about how Airflow has the same model where you can create these contributions, which are different connectors for Luigi or for Airflow, where you can connect them to either different cloud providers or different data stores, things like that. And that allows you to use Luigi or any workflow manager in numerous different contexts, whether it's locally on your own computer, running things in Docker containers or whether it's deploying out to AWS and scaling massively horizontal. These workflow managers really support that, and that's why they're a necessary component in how we productionize our data pipelines. Yeah. Again, they just seem so empowering for allowing people to focus on just each step independently, which is excellent. Did you consider other ones? Like, did you consider Airflow or Dagster or any of these other ones? Or did you find this fit and you're like, we're going with this? We did look at some other ones. We were using Nextflow for a little bit, which is a bioinformatic flavored workflow manager. It's, it's very focused on bioinformatics as its primary use case, although you could use it for anything. Syntax is similar to Groovy and it's based in Groovy. And that was one of the, the detractors for us is that it was a little hard to get under the hood and use that because of it. I did briefly look at Dagster after hearing uh, a few episodes, I think 
No, we made it a different podcast. Yeah, I did have uh, Tobias Macy on to give us an overview of the whole data engineering landscape. So possibly, I know he spoke about it then, but I'm not sure when you heard about it. Yeah, so I heard about it on a, on a podcast, probably this one as well. And I did look into it, but it didn't have it at that time. It was pretty early and it didn't have any connectors to AWS in the ways that we like to use Luigi. The connectors, right? That's such an important thing because otherwise you've got to learn the API of every single thing you're talking to. Yeah. These days, knowing how Luigi works, it actually wouldn't have been that big of a task to yeah, look, yeah, yeah. look under the hood. But yeah, so we did choose Luigi and particularly we like how it, it handles deployment to AWS and we use it on the service called AWS Batch, which is, I guess it might be similar to like Kubernetes pod, although I haven't done anything with A8s uh, or anything like that. So I, I'm not speaking from experience, but it essentially scales up EC2 instances, these elastic compute instances on the cloud as you need them. And it gives out jobs to the virtual computers as necessary. So it, it spins them up, allocates jobs in a Docker container. They run when there's no more jobs on the instance. It shuts off. Okay. So what do you, you come up with like an AMI, an Amazon machine image that's pre-configured, set up, ready to run. And then you say, I'm going to give you a bunch of data. Each one of these data gets passed to the machine and it, it runs and then maybe even shuts down when it's done. Yeah, there is an AMI. We keep the AMI pretty simple because it's the sort of the base for all of them. And then the way batch works is you have your, your top level AMI that's called the, the compute environment, I believe. And then inside of it, you run the actual job and the job runs inside of a Docker container. Oh, I see. So the Docker container is pre-configured with like all the Python dependencies and the settings that it needs and whatnot. Right. So we have each task in Luigi, each little piece of work has its own Docker container. And then we push those out into the cloud and they get allocated out onto these machines. They run their task, data comes in from S3, goes back out to S3, nothing is left on the hard drives, and then they disappear. They're, they're these little ephemeral compute instances. And that's all managed by a workflow manager such as Luigi or Airflow or Nextflow. Wow, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. One of the things that I remember reading and thinking that's a pretty crazy use of the cloud was this Ars Technica article from... Look at that year, 2011. Oh, wow. So if you think back to 2011, like the cloud was really new and the idea of spending a ton of money on it and getting a bunch of compute out of it was still somewhat foreign to people. So there's this article I'll link to called the 100 or 1,279 per dollar per hour, 30,000 core cluster built on Amazon EC2 cloud, which is this company, this pharmaceutical company that needed to do a lot of computing. And they said, instead of buying a supercomputer, basically, we're going to come up and just fire off an insane amount of cores. And I think if I remember reading this correctly, that they weren't allowed to make that many cores in a single data center. So they had to do this across, <laughs> they also had to coordinate in like multi data center type of, of processing as well. Cause yeah, it's just the, the scale of everything. This seems like the type of work that you all might be doing. Yeah, it does look very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You got any war stories? Can you tell us anything about this? Yeah, we, we do occasionally have a certain type of molecular modeling job that 
we can scale very wide. And I think these, this sort of 30,000 number looks pretty familiar. I think our largest jobs today have been about 10,000 CPUs wide and running for a few days. So maybe like four or five days. I think the number was like four or five days on the 10,000 cores. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a lot. And I, so I think it was like over a million CPU hours on AWS batch. And that was just something that we could really heavily parallelize and we needed the data fast and yeah. it worked. <laughs> you pull it all back and aggregate it all together at the end that it was a really useful data set. And it's pretty amazing what you can do on some of these cloud providers by going really wide. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, I mean, there's some places where it makes sense to like build true supercomputers like Oak Ridge has this thing called Summit, which is like this insane supercomputer that they have. But a lot of times there's the latency of getting something like this set up. There's the overhead of, well, guess what? Now you're an admin for like an insane, there's only three in the world supercomputer type system. It's got to be empowering to be able to just go hit go and then let all this happen and not worry about all those details, right? Yeah. And there's definitely still some stress involved in, in starting one of these jobs. If you just, you know, it's not cheap. <laughs> anyway, you slice it. We do, we do try to, you know, do everything we can to make it as, as efficient in cost as possible. But yeah, I'm sure there's, there's two aspects to it that really jump out to me. One is the, oh, was that the wrong version of the code? The, the one that still had the bug? We got to throw away all the data. Whoops. We just ran for five days and, you know, thousands of dollars got burned up. And there's a bit of a problem there. So whoops. And now it's five days later till you get the answer as well, right? That's one. And then oh, man, I'm losing track of my thought on my other one. But yeah, anyway, it's just got to be stressful to be like to set that up and then press go, right? It definitely is. I think one of the benefits is a lot of our computational team does have a experimental background and you know, doing experiments in the lab, these sort of numbers like tens of thousands of dollars for an experiment are, are not really that uncommon. And for those kind of things, you get really careful and you check all the boxes and yeah. double check everything. And so I think a lot of us have had that, that experience. And so even when we're dealing with software, we'll be very careful and we'll, we'll do the tests and quality control before we really let her rip. Yeah. I, you know, I worked on some projects when I was in grad school that were on a silicon graphics, big mainframe type thing. And obviously much lower importance than you know, solving diseases and stuff is just solving math problems. But I remember coming in to work on the project one day and none of our workstations could log in to the silicon graphics machine. And like, what is wrong with this thing? And it was so loud. It was in the other room. You could hear it roaring away in there. It clearly was loud. And what happened was it wasn't me. It was someone else in the group had written some code. And these, these things would run all night. We'd come in in the morning and we'd check them. And what had happened was they had a bug in their code, which they knew they were trying to di diagnose it. So they were printing out a bunch of log stuff or something like that. Well, they did that in a tight loop on a high-end computer for a night and it filled up the hard drive till it had zero bytes left. And apparently the silicon graphics machine couldn't operate anymore. It was literally zero bytes. And so it just stopped working. They couldn't get it to turn on. It was like, it took days to get it back, I believe. Oof. Oops. <laughs> But it's like that kind of stuff, right? I mean, this you're not going to break EC2, but you know you don't know until the next day that, oh, look, you filled up the computer and it doesn't work anymore, right? Like, when you're doing that much computing, you could 
run out of different resources, you could run into all kinds of problems. Absolutely. And uh, we are we are without our, our war stories of, of <laughs> doing this, but uh, I think we, we've definitely learned a lot of lessons along the way of how to monitor your jobs effectively and double check things. But uh, yeah, sometimes, yeah, you run some a big job and it, it doesn't quite turn out right, but it's the cost of doing business, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very computational to explore stuff like this kind of stuff, but that's also what enables it, right? Without this computing power, it would just not be a thing. Absolutely. A lot of the data just takes a lot of time to process and there's just not really any way around it. And even when you're iterating, you have to go through all the hoops to look at the data at the end. Yeah. So you talked about APIs, you talked about data store. What are you using for a database? Is this like a hosted RDS AWS thing or... What is the story with that? Yeah, so we, we have a few different places to store data. Our larger scale internal data, we, we store in Django-based web app and we use the Django ORM for SQL-based database, a MySQL database on, on AWS. And that has worked surprisingly effectively, actually. I've, <laughs> I've heard yeah. some people say that the, the Django ORM is uh, it's really slow when you scale out and things, but... It's, uh, you know, if you, if you design it correctly, I think it, it'll surprise you. I think that's so true. I, I hear so many things about, oh, ORMs are slow, or this thing is slow in this way. And wow, if you have the queries structured well, you do the joins ahead of time, if you have the indexes and you've, you put the work into finding all these things, it's mind-blowing. When I go to sites, I won't call any out, I, I don't know if they've been updated or whatever, but you go to a site and you're like, this site is taking four or five seconds to load. What could it possibly be doing? I mean, I know it has some data, but it doesn't have unimaginable amounts of data, right? It Surely somebody could just put an index in here or worst case, a cache in some, and it would just transform it, right? So yeah, I'm glad to hear you're having good experiences. Yeah, it's been, uh, we definitely uh, fairly regularly run into slow queries. They're usually... Not too bad to solve. I'm sure at some point we'll get to something really wonky that will be challenging. But I think for the most part, yeah, we've been able to solve it through better query design and better indexing. Yeah. Do you ever do things where you opt out of the sort of class-based query syntax and go straight to SQL queries you know, here and there to make sure that that, that part works better? We have tried it for some particular sequence-based searches that we do. And I actually found that most of the time, like you can write it in the ORM. It's just a little more complicated, but I, I do expect that at some point we will be writing raw SQL queries because out of necessity. Yeah, but it's not the majority. Mainly you're using the ORM and then it's okay. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of that benefits from you know the appropriate data model will help, <laughs> help the queries along the way. Yeah, absolutely. The thing I found the slowest about ORMs and ODM uh, if you're doing document databases, is the deserialization actually, right? It's not the query time, but it's like, I got to generate 100,000 Python objects and that just happens to be not that fast <laughs> relative to other things. You're talking about my, my Monday morning. <laughs> <Michael>. <laughs> and in those cases, I think that's the place where it makes sense to maybe do some kind of like a projection or something. I don't know how to do it in Django RM, but in say Mongo engine, you can say, I know what I'm going to get back is a an iterable set of these objects that match to the data, but only actually add, just fill out these two fields. Most of the data, just throw it away. Don't try to parse it and convert it. Just like, I just want these two fields. And that usually makes it dramatically faster. Yeah. 
we run into a number of bottlenecks at the serialization layer and we have been experimenting with a variety of different ways to solve those issues. And, and yeah, sometimes it means make, putting fewer Python objects between you and the data and that often speeds it up, even if it makes it a little bit harder to interpret in your development environment. Yeah, absolutely. Or just say, you know what? I just need dictionaries this time. Like it's, I know it's going to be less fun, but that's, yep. that's what it takes. <laughs> that was the fix on Monday morning. <laughs> we do try to extensively use data classes for a, a lot of our interoperability. When data comes in and out of a pipeline, we like to have it in a, a data class in a, a centrally stored repository. And then our Django web app also has access to that. So it knows what the structure of the data coming in is and it knows what to serialize it to when it's coming out. And those, the Python data classes has been a, a really useful tool for that, but it's, I think we were talking about that on another podcast a, a few weeks ago, maybe it was the Python Bytes one, that the, the data classes can be, can be slow. And sometimes it's better to just have a dictionary, even if it yeah. is a very highly structured dictionary. Yeah, and the problem is maintainability and whatnot. But, you know, if it's five times slower, like, you know what, this time it matters. So we're gonna just, bite the bullet and have to deal with it. Let's see, we had time for just a, a little bit more digging into it. So you talked about the Django RM, Django REST framework, which is all great. What's the server deployment story? Like, how do you run that thing? Is it with uh, G-Unicorn? Is it micro WSGI? You know, what's your, your yeah. setup on that side of things? Ours is a, a little a little custom. I, I guess in, in some ways it's it's pretty standard. I think we're blanking on exactly how it's set up now, but it's uh, there's a Nginx proxy. I am blanking on. It might be G Unicorn. I feel like G Unicorn and Django go together frequently. I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure why they got paired up specifically, but yeah, that's it's a good one. And and we end up deploying it out to AWS Elastic Beanstalk, which is a source of of some conversation uh, in our team because there's mm. there's some things we really like about it, and there's some things that uh, are really annoying in terms of de the deployment is much more complicated than we would like it to be, but we have everything wrapped up in a pretty gnarly CDK stack that does yeah. a lot of this work. <laughs> it was messy, but you've, you've solved it with a CDK. Now it's just, you push the button and it's okay. It's exactly like that. We, we have a, a very automated deployment process. I wouldn't like to refactor it, but uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's there and it works. Um, so that, that yeah. works for us. But I, I think, yeah, it's a pretty standard Django deployment on the cloud and, and it's, it, it works well. Yeah, cool. All right, well, I think that's probably about it for time to talk about the specifics of what you all are doing, but there's the last two questions, as always. So let's start with the editor. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you use? VS Code. A VS lot code, of right? the remote development environment on that. Oh, yeah, you, you use the remote aspect of it? Yeah, we're doing a lot of work on EC2 instances as our day-to-day -day work, and VS Code, the way it works with instances in the cloud is really amazing so I would, I would encourage anyone to check out that extension okay. or yeah you you get access to like the file system on the remote machine and basically it's just your view into that server but it's more or less standard vs code right but when you hit yep. run it just runs up there it feels exactly like you're on your own computer sometimes i actually get confused whether i'm on a remote or not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, does it work because i'm in virginia i see yeah all right and then notable pypi package i'll have to shout out some of the ones we talked about i would i would encourage people to look at AWS CDK. If they're on AWS, I think it, it has some really interesting things there. And then also Luigi as a, a workflow manager, if people are doing any of these types of 
you know, data pipelines that have tasks that get reused. These sort of workflow managers are really cool. And Luigi is a pretty accessible one for anyone that's familiar with Python. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I'm just learning to embrace these workflow managers, but they do seem really amazing. All right. So for all the biologists and scientists out there listening, thinking uh, you've got this really cool setup and all this cool computational infrastructure, you know, what do you tell them? How do they get started? Maybe biology or, or wherever? I think biology is a good place to start. We're also happy to have people come from a software background that are really interested in learning the biology. And I guess as a, as a final plug, we, we do have a few open positions. So if you're interested, uh, check out our careers page and give us an application. Are you guys a remote place? Remote friendly or what's the story these days? Yep. We're remote friendly. I'm actually living in Philadelphia and our company is based in Cambridge. So oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a short trip to the cloud, no matter where you come from, basically. Absolutely. Right, <laughs> right on. Oh, David, thank you for being here and giving us this look inside all the gene editing Python stuff you're doing. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure. Yeah, you bet. Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest on this episode was David Bourne, and it's been brought to you by Shortcut, us over at Talk Python Training, and the transcripts were brought to you by Assembly AI. Choose Shortcut, formerly Clubhouse IO, for tracking all of your project's work because you shouldn't have to project manage your project management. Visit hawkpython.fm slash shortcut. Do you need a great automatic speech-to-text API? Get human-level accuracy in just a few lines of code. Visit hawkpython.fm slash assemblyai. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.